Welcome to the Law School Admissions Simplify podcast, where we talk about all things LSAT, law school admissions, and life-related. I'm Ben Parker, and I run LSA Simplified, where I do LSAT prep and law school admissions full-time. You can find me on Instagram, where I post about various admissions process things and the LSAT at LSA Simplified, or find all that I'm up to at lsasimplified.com. I've written an LSAT book you can find on Amazon, which is called LSA Simplified LSAT Primer. And I also host free LSAT sessions once a month if you want to attend something live. Alrighty, cool, cool. Also today, we're talking about a few things. Um, first off, we're going to talk about blind review, how to do that and how not to do it. We are then going to talk about Orwell's rules for writing, uh, which are very useful when you are crafting your personal statements, diversity statements, or really anything that you're going to write in your admission to law school. We'll also talk about what the ABA is and law school lingo, and then we will visit Reddit. Alrighty, so to start things off, blind review. So blind review refers to when you're going back through a practice test or a section you've done and reviewing your wrong answers. And blind review can be done in two ways, one of which is, I think, somewhat useful, and one of which is just totally terrible. So the first way is where you grade your section and you know which answers are wrong and which ones you got right. The issue with this is that by removing the uh, question, or by only looking at the questions that you've gotten wrong, you have already identified which ones you got wrong. And that's part of the process is you don't even have to rethink whether or not your process was correct in the first place. You just automatically jump to, oh, I got this question wrong. And you eliminate the most tempting wrong answer. Most of the questions on the LSAT do not have two good answers. In fact, very few do. So if you immediately eliminate the most tempting wrong answer that tricked you the first time, you should get nearly every question right. In fact, it's pretty normal for people in the 140s or 150s to immediately jump to the 170s doing this kind of cheat code blind review because it is a cheat code to get rid of the most tempting wrong answer. Now it's if you can pick one of the correct, one of the best two answers, which is really easy. Uh, so that is very tricky and it's not very helpful. The other kind of blind review is where when time is up, you then go back and review all the questions and think through them deeply. Uh, which I guess is good because you get a chance to really think things through in real time. My only objection with that is why didn't you get it right the first time? You really shouldn't be moving past the question until you're feeling pretty good about it. And yeah, like 10% of the time when you're learning, you're still going to make mistakes. But if you're getting 20 through like 20 questions and you missed five of them, you shouldn't have been making it to 20 questions. You should have been doing 10 to 15 questions well. And then as you build understanding, it'll get deeper into section. So I am not a big advocate of blind review. But if you are going to do blind review, make sure you're doing it blind and not by grading your section or test first. If you are grading your section or test first, you're not doing blind review. You're just doing cheat code LSAT and making it super easy on yourself. So you have to make sure that if you are going to do it, you do it in a way where you are reviewing every question. And the issue if you're doing it where you review every question is, man, that's a lot of time that you are wasting that you could have just approached the question, you know, upfront with understanding the first time. If you are really seeing a big jump between your normal scores and your blind review scores, it means you're going too fast because it means you actually do have it in you to figure them out. But if you're answering them and you're missing them, and then in hindsight, you go back and you figure it out, that means you went too quick the first time. So I find that blind review, all it really diagnoses is that you have an approach issue where you are going through the LSAT far too quickly. And if you just slowed down and took it easy, you would get much better. Okay. So that's blind review. I know it's a pretty quick thought, but... A lot of people really emphasize it and I don't. That being said, like, can you get value from it? Sure. I'm not gonna say like never use blind review, um, but I would prefer that you just do the section well the first time. Um, so yeah, okay. But that's not like terrible, terrible LSAT advice, like other things you'll hear about like keywords or crap like that. 
Um, blind review can be very efficacious for some people. I just don't find it's the best way to learn. All right, that brings us to Orwell's rules for writing, which are in regards to you know writing, not the LSAT. So this comes to admissions. Another thing you'll see is that the LSAT often breaks these rules because the LSAT is poorly written for what it's worth. Uh, but you should generally follow them. So I don't know the background of them, but George Orwell, he wrote 1984. He wrote Animal Farm. I personally don't love 1984. Personally, I don't find it to be a very compelling book. I mean, it's interesting. It's like a solid read, but it seems to be held as like this very um, predictive and transformative book, whereas I think Animal Farm is a lot more profound personally. But we're not here for my literary recommendations. However, if you haven't read Animal Farm, you should. It's um, a really easy read, and it's, I think, very fascinating. Uh, so yeah, what does Orwell say? So rule one, never use a metaphor, simile, or other figure of speech which you are used to seeing in print. So my interpretation of that is if you've only ever seen something written and you don't say it in your everyday conversation, it does not belong in your writing. That kind of gets us to a broader point, which Orwell doesn't say, but generally you should speak as you write. You shouldn't change your vocabulary when you're writing. And often people do. Often people, I think, try to get a little bit fancier in their writing, use more convoluted sentences, use bigger words. And it often has the reverse effect of what people intend to do, which is make them sound smarter because it really clogs up your writing and sounds bad. Write as if you would speak. It'll keep it much more clear. It is amazing how shorter sentences and shorter words actually make your writing cut deeper. So I would really try to do that. Uh, second rule, never use a long word or a short one will do. And I completely agree with that. Like, yeah, keep your words short. It is always possible that you'll have to use a long word because you're trying to convey some meaning that only a long word will convey. But my example of this that I always use is the word utilize versus the word use. There is no functional difference between the two words. They mean the exact same thing, but one of them is three letters and the other one is seven letters. So use the three letter word. Is there anything wrong with you using utilize? Like technically no. However, it bogs up your writing I find a lot of people love to do this because I think they think it makes them look smarter than they appear, but it's not, it, it actually makes you look worse. Um, so try to clean up your writing. Always let the ideas speak for themselves. Your words and writing should not be carrying that much power. They should be conveying ideas simply, and those ideas should do the power of listening for you. Next, if it is possible to cut a word out, always cut it out. And I actually had a professor in undergrad who uh, simplified this idea even further, and he boiled it down to omit needless words, which is just three words. If you don't need the word, cut it. If you have adjectives, adverbs, some of them can stay. For the most part though, you should probably be dropping them. And yeah, if you don't need a word, just drop it. It really cleans up your writing. Remember, we're trying to convey ideas. We're not trying to write fancy things on the page. If you can convey ideas, the ideas in a smaller amount of words, do that. This is not a, like a document you're gonna get sued over. I know that legal documents, and many of you may see lawyers, they are like super long. They have all this unnecessary writing. They'll like say the word 17 and then put 17, the number in parentheses, as if anyone would misinterpret what the word 17 is. But they do that because they can get sued. You guys aren't going to get sued over your personal statement. So you don't need these fancy, fancy like writing techniques or words. It's just not necessary. Your goal here is to convey information, not to be a lawyer which is kind of funny because like, you know, you will be a lawyer one day, but here you're trying to communicate to an admissions person. And in doing so, you want to keep it simple. Next, rule four, never use the passive where you can use the active. So that refers to like passive versus active voice. I'm sure you're all familiar with it. Um, passive voice is like, God, what's an example of passive voice? Um, like I have been told, 
that that's a way of passive voice. Like I've been told by my teacher that I need to do my homework. Whereas you could change that to active voice. Like I heard that I need to do my homework. So often it's um usage of the word, the verb to be, uh, which can come as is, had, et cetera. I won't make you guys do conjugation tables here, but basically uh, the verb to be, you don't need in your writing. Whenever you can replace it with a more active word, it makes your writing more powerful. And for what it's worth, I used to do that a lot as well. It takes a little bit of training to get yourself out of it, but you do stop doing it eventually. It is funny. Back when I was in undergrad, I literally would run all my essays through a passive voice detector. And every single essay would have like 10 instances, just because it's so natural to say, but it really does make your writing weaker. And we don't want our writing to be weak. We want our writing to be strong. So uh, make sure you're doing that. Once again, if you have Grammarly, it'll cut that. All right, rule five, never use a foreign phrase, a scientific word, or a jargon word if you can think of an everyday English equivalent. Yeah, so like if you don't, don't use technical jargon terms, if you can come up with a equivalent. I'm trying to think of an example uh, that relates to something that I do. I'm trying to think. Um, do, do, do. Yeah, I'm having a hard time kind of blanking on that. I, I try not to use jargon or scientific words, but I, I guess in LSAC spaces, you could say like, um, an ad column, which is really just an admissions person. It's an well, like, admissions committee is where that comes from, but you can basically just say an admissions person. Similarly, like, I guess you could call a logical reasoning argument, the stimulus, as many people call it. I don't call it that. I just call it the argument. These are less egregious than what most people tend to do. This is more so referring to like some, like, let's say you're writing about your career, working on the parts of planes and like the mechanics of them. Don't go into the jargon of that because your reader won't know and it'll confuse them. Okay, and then rule six is stupid, but it says break any of these rules sooner than say anything outright barbarous. And basically what they're saying there is like, if you do have to say something terrible, yeah, there is a little bit of flexibility to break the rules. Though generally you should be sticking to them because they do lead to clean writing, which I, I guess is okay. I don't like the phrasing of that outright barbarous. It's like, didn't you just talk about how you shouldn't use jargon or kind of odd words, but... Regardless, Orwell's rules for writing are pretty good. He writes cleanly, and I would try to emulate that. You, as with anything, there's like multiple ways to write well, but I find that most people do not have as strong of writing as they hope to have. And I think these rules are a great place to start. If you can do these, you will do well. And then additionally, as I'm saying, I feel like every podcast, if you don't have Grammarly, please get it. I promise you it will shred up your writing in all the best ways. None of us are as good of writers as we think we are. A first draft is never good. Even the best writers in the world, their first draft sucks. I find too many people, it's kind of like inversely related to how good of a writer you are. If you're a bad writer, people tend to think their first drafts are actually good. If you're a good writer, you realize how dirty your first drafts are and how much you need to clean them up. So I would make sure that you are, you know, going through and making sure you have good writing, editing, all that good stuff. Okay, fantastic. So those are Orwell's rules for writing. Uh, next up is our law school lingo for the day. Today, we're talking about the ABA, which is the American Bar Association. So the ABA is the uh, association. I, I don't know. I think they accredit the law. No, they do accredit the law schools. I shouldn't say, I think. But basically, they say who law schools are and who are not. I'm not sure if they go deeper than that, if they um actually like have state bars or how that relates. But yeah, I'm just pulling up their um, Wikipedia page. It says, as of 2017, ABA had about 200,000 due-paying members, which was approximately 14% of American attorneys. So that's a minority. And yeah, so I, I guess primarily they um, relate to education because all the good law schools are ABA accredited. If a law school is not ABA accredited, 
that's a problem. And it's a necessary but not sufficient condition. Even if it is ABA accredited, it could still be a garbage law school. It's just that there are not good law schools that are not ABA accredited. The only exception to that is the Canadian law schools. But like if you're going to Canada, you're not practicing in the US anyways, or at least you should have planned to. Maybe if you go to like University of Toronto, you can get hired at like a New York firm. But even then, I think they're going to prefer American uh, grads. The, the Canadian schools, just a quick tangent on those, is it's tough because like as a general rule, they're harder to get into. They don't have bottom feeders in Canada, but they're easier to get into at the same time. They're like all clustered around kind of what the mid-range schools are. Like they all have like the acceptance requirements of about the schools ranked like 20 to 50 in the U.S. So they kind of don't have that top tier like the U.S. does. They also don't have that bottom tier. So it's like much more clustered. The outcomes are much better, but tuition is much more reasonable. So Canada, I would say, has an overall better system. The downside is that everyone has to pay tuition. So they don't do the scholarship bullshit that we do, which like as a system is definitely broken. And it's like a take from the rich, give, sorry, take from the poor, give to the rich system because it charges the people with lower LSATs, lower GPAs, higher amounts of tuition. So then people with higher LSATs and higher GPAs don't have to pay at all, which is awesome if you game the system and you have a high LSAT or high GPA because then you can go for free. Obviously, from a societal perspective, it's not great because now we're cranking out these lawyers that are indebted. The people with the most debt have the worst job prospects. And that's a nightmare just as a society, but it's how it works. Um, so yeah, fun stuff there. Okay, so that was the ABA. Kind of went on a Canada tangent, but if you are Canadian, um, I mean, all my LSAT advice will apply and most of my admissions advice will apply. Your guys' essays are a little different. So like, you guys don't have as generic of personal statements, as generic of diversity statements. But as far as just the general writing advice, I think that will all hold true. So you can still get a lot of good stuff from this podcast, just not the like American scholarship bullshit that we have, which don't get me wrong. If you're an American, it's good news for you as an individual, because as an individual, it means you don't have to pay anything for law school and that you can go for cheap. And that's awesome. We also have 150 some schools to pick from, whereas the Canadians have, oh man, I should know this, but I, I think it's sub 30, maybe even sub 20. So you have a lot more option. They also have a much smaller population, so it makes sense in those regards. In fact, they might have more law schools per capita than we do, because Canada, I think it's only like 30 million people. It's um, a lot smaller than I thought, because, I mean, you look up at the map, and it's like, that's huge. But yeah, Canada's only about 40 million people. It's smaller than California. Kind of wild. So our neighbors up north, um, America's top hat, are, yeah, smaller than I always thought going up. I thought that they were like 100 million or 200 million. On a total time. Tangent, do you guys know Japan is like 300 million people? I learned, okay, no, they're not 300, they're 125 million. That's still a lot of people. Like I was blown away when I heard Japan was 125 million people. Cause I always thought it was like relatively small. Japan's huge. And for what it's worth, I don't think I have any Japanese listeners. It is pretty interesting seeing where you guys are from. I don't know each of you individually, but from the podcast hosting website, I can see basic ideas of where people are from. And you know, it's popular in all the areas you would expect. Like we have a lot of listeners in the DC area, which makes sense because a lot of people are in DC are going to law school. Florida's pretty hot packed. So is Texas and California, you know, the big population states. Um, but we have one listener in somewhere in Israel or the West Bank. I can't, I, I don't know. The, the website doesn't get quite specific, but it's over there. Uh, there's someone in Hong Kong. So shout out to you. And another person in Australia. So kind of wild. Um, how we have spread. Another someone in Europe in like Belgium, but I don't know. Cool, cool. Yeah, fun stuff there. Still one person or like two people in Canada. I have not really picked up in Canada. So I guess my whole Canada rant is um, falling upon deaf ears for the most part, unless, you know, you're listening to this in the future. But yeah, cool. So that's that. Um, 
let's pop over to Reddit. We're keeping it kind of tight today, just going through a few questions, but this should be a fun one. All right, so our first question is getting LR questions right, but never 100% correct. So this person says, I just did a set of 10 LR questions. And once again, my first question is, why are you doing a set of questions? Why aren't you, um, what is it? Why aren't you doing like, geez, sorry, I'm, I'm blanking. Like, why are you just not doing a section? Why are you doing a set of questions? It could be super easy. It could be super hard. Doing a set of 10 questions does not tell you where you're at. And it is fine in supplement to your prep, but this is not prep. You actually have to do sections to understand where you're at. And they say, easy wants to be fair. And despite getting eight out of 10, right? I flagged nine out of 10 of them for extra review because I was iffy on small things, but was relatively confident I picked the right answer. Um. Okay, so you shouldn't, I recommend never flagging questions. Get it right the first time and move on. Take your time. But by the time you move on to question two, you're done with question one. I don't want you even thinking about it. I want you to flush that down the drain by the time you move on to question two. That doesn't mean you need 100% accuracy, but it does mean that you are spending the time. You're like, this is the best I've done. I'm not going to get any better on it. I'm moving on and I'm not coming back. You have to have that confidence if you want to get good at the LSAT. Um, and they say, I was not 100% confident that I picked the right answer and had some doubt. Yeah, I mean, if you're having that issue on the easy questions, I, I don't know because this person said they're doing problem sets of 10. I, I really don't know like where those are. If they're like the first 10 questions in an LR section, that's a problem. You need to um, realize that you're smart enough to do this. I find often people second guess their intelligence for whatever reason, and they don't think that the LSAT is something that they can do, which is just not true. The first 10 are very, very easy. You can all do it. A fifth grader could do it. Um, I think that people often just, because it's the LSAT, they make it into something bigger than it is. And don't get me wrong, there are hard questions on the LSAT, but not often in the first 10. So have that swagger, know that you're capable of doing it. It will really help. All right, they continue. Is that a problem and a symptom of not understanding some fundamentals? Uh, well, so I don't really believe in LSAT fundamentals. It's a confidence issue for sure. I, I think that's definitely there. If you're getting eight out of 10 right, for one, if those are the first 10, eight out of 10 is not that awesome. I would consider that kind of baseline, which it's a good start, don't get me wrong, but eight out of 10 is not like fantastic especially if you're flagging nine out of 10. Like you need to build your confidence. They continue. I had a good reason to choose the right answers and felt relatively confident, 70 to 95%. I don't like 70%. 95 is fine, but you should be like 95% confident on every answer. That doesn't mean you can't miss some from time to time, but that just means you have something to dive into. You really need to be confident in the answers you're picking. They continue. Should I be concerned and clearly need more review for these questions? Or is this an issue that a high 150 to low 160 score always deals with? No, absolutely not. If you are in the high 150s, low 160s, you should be past this. You, you are good at the first 10 questions if you are scoring at that point. You should not. This sounds to me like someone who's psyching themselves out because they're freaking. Um, yeah, they're, they're freaking themselves out. Though I don't actually know where they're scoring. They never really say it clearly. They have a lot of numbers in the rest of their post, which I won't read. But it basically is saying they're like aiming for like the mid 160s. Um, yeah, I mean, if you're actually in the high 150s and low 160s, it sounds like a confidence issue, not an understanding issue. I mean, don't get me wrong. If you're in the high 150s and low 160s, you do have understanding issues to clean up. There are things you can learn, but it's not like you're totally just whiffing it. Like you are getting the easy ones right if you're at that point, which means that you should have confidence on those. If you're not, it's likely a confidence issue. And yeah, uh, hopefully that helps. But I really do think that you should um, just trust yourself more. Like you're doing okay. If you're in the high 150s and 160s, You've proven to both yourself and the LSAT that you are capable of this. So yeah, believe in yourself, not, not to be the like sentimental encouraging person that is my brand, but I don't know, like you've done the work, you have more to do, but if you're worried that you're getting 90% of them wrong at that point, and you're scoring at that level of high 150s, low 160s, you do have understanding. So trust yourself. All right. The next question is reading comprehension tips. 
Does anyone have any RC tips? I can never finish an entire section and I lose focus so quickly. It's currently my worst section. So that's very broad. I won't rehash my whole reading comp episode. If you want to go back, I think it's episode four. I could be wrong about that. But basically it's read to understand. Uh, you have to separate the main point from the topic. And then they have a few things that concern me, um, some of which are good and some of which are bad. So the first thing is I lose focus so quickly. You're going to have to get over that. If this is going to be the field you're going into, you're going to read a ton as a lawyer. So the idea that you can't get through, you know, 18 sentences is a huge problem. That is not just going to be an LSAT problem. That is going to be a law school problem. And then it's going to be a legal practice problem. So you need to figure that out now, or you need to get off this training because it's not going to get better. Uh, but their next point, which is I can never finish an entire section. That's actually not a bad thing because you really should be focusing on accuracy and reading comp is the hardest section of the three for people to, um, get that high accuracy on and finish. So early in your prep, I would say two to three passages is what you should be aiming for. In fact, many people will probably take the LSAT and never do more than three passages, especially if they only have 35 minutes. So if I were you, I would, you know, slow down, do two to three and learn how to focus because you're going to have to figure that out. There's no way around it and there's no tips for it. It's just be a big boy or girl. This is your job or this is the job that you want to have. Figure it out. There really isn't much more advice than that other than like read more in your life. Um, I mean, maybe if you have like ADHD or something, get medicated. I don't know if that's what you have, but you're going to have to figure it out. Like there's no trick around this. You're just going to have to learn to read. Oh yeah. Next up is um, in logic games question, which is good. We're hitting all three sections. And this person says to the people scoring minus zero, which is me, how does game four feel for you? I'm scoring minus three to minus four, but dang, the fourth game takes my lunch money every time. I usually miss maybe one on game three, but I educated guess on game four. Well, first off, there's no educated guessing on logic games. You are solving these questions. You're not attempting them. Um, so you are either guessing or you are solving them and there is really nothing in between. So your first thing to do is re to recognize that educated guesses are not a thing on the LSAT. Uh, and then as far as like how the fourth game feels overall, easy, because they all feel easy. Games is super learnable. Game four tends to have more curveballs where they introduce you to something new, but the battle is usually in the setup on those and realizing that ultimately the conditions interact just as they do on any other game and you can follow the inference method just as safely. So um, yeah, it's, it's definitely like objectively harder, but it's still objectively easy once you learn how to do them. So if you're missing one on game three, I think that indicates that you're, probably just struggling in general on games and you need to build a better understanding, which you're just going to have to do more practice for. Additionally, often people that are struggling on game four, it's because they're spending too much time on game one or two. We're like, yeah, they're crushing game one and two, but it's taking them 12 minutes each. And then by the time they get to game three and four, they don't have much time left. So sometimes even if you're getting all the questions right, you still have stuff to learn because your process could become more efficient. So usually if you think game four is the problem, it probably is. Like you are probably struggling there. But your speed at which you're moving through game one and two is also a problem. So I would go back there and make sure that you are diving into that as well. But they do have one more question, which is, do you feel like it's a game one question, usually easier? Or does it feel hard? You are just better at solving the problem. Yeah, no, they are harder. It's just that once you get good at solving the problems, game four isn't a problem. So yeah, no, they, they are more difficult to this person. Like the later questions do get more difficult. However, they're still easy already. Well, that's that kind of a shorter episode today, but I think shorter episode with good content beats a super long episode where it kind of drags on. Uh, if you have feedback on that though, I'm interested to hear. Unfortunately, you really can't see podcast analytics. Like you can't see how long people listen to. You can't see, um, you know, when they're dropping off. So I have no idea whether people prefer 
long or short. I guess what I'll do is I'll just kind of compare and contrast the two as to which ones get downloaded more. because that's the only metric I have. Um, but yeah, if you have anything you want on the agenda, you're welcome to email ben at lsasimplified.com. Uh, you can also send in personal statements or diversity statements if you have anything you want to get reviewed. I also don't advertise the podcast. So tell a friend, tell your pre-law society, um, get people listening. So I think it's a good resource. And there's a lot of nonsense in the LSAT space. So I'm trying to cut through that. Alrighty. Well, thank you all for listening and I will see you next time.